Harold had been lying dead in his Pimlico flat for several days before his body on the lounge floor had been spotted by a window cleaner. This is what I was told when they finally tracked me down to the conference I was attending in Manchester. A police constable came with the sad news under the mistaken impression that I was Harold's cousin. In fact, Harold had no living relatives, but as I was one of the few privileged visitors to the Pimlico flat, his landlady had presumed we were related. Not so. I was, however, his oldest friend. Yes, we went back a long way, Harold and I, from primary school to Cambridge and ever after. We met on a regular basis, usually attending a concert together or the opera, and then going back either to his flat or mine to eat takeaway Chinese. But what happened? I asked. How did Harold die? There were no suspicious circumstances, the policeman informed me. It was an accident. Cause of death was brain hemorrhage, caused by the gentleman falling and hitting his head on the metal radiator. Falling? Harold was not given to falling. He was only forty, hardly a geriatric, and I said as much. How had he fallen? We surmised that he tripped. There was a bear on the floor, sir. A what? A bear. One of those toy teddies. Yes, but surely Harold didn't blunder about. He was the kind of person who looked where he was going. He was unsteady on his feet, sir. Are you suggesting he was inebriated? Definitely, sir. No doubt about it. But Harold didn't drink. I practically shouted it. There was a silence. The policeman looked at me pityingly, the way he might if I was suffering from a mental disability. There had been a time years ago at Cambridge when Harold had had a severe drinking problem, culminating in his losing the only girl he ever wanted to marry. After that, he'd embraced the AA movement and given alcohol up completely. The phrase, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, echoed in my brain. It was undoubtedly what the policeman was thinking. He didn't say that, of course. He said, oh, very sorry, sir. And after I'd assured him that I would take care of all the necessary arrangements, he made his departure. So, a dear person had left me, and with him, the best friendship I'd ever had. I arranged the funeral, of course. There was no one else to do it. Hardly anyone came. His landlady, a mousy-looking girl from his office, his solicitor and myself. Not much of a send-off, really. But then Harold would have preferred a quiet affair. A short while after that, the solicitor informed me that Harold had left a will and that I was the only beneficiary. Not that his estate amounted to very much, very little, in fact. A modest high-interest savings account, a few bonds and the contents of his rented flat. But I was very, very touched. Eventually, with the solicitor's permission, I steeled myself to go over to Harold's flat. There was something unutterably sad about being once again in the place where I had spent so many convivial evenings, and had so many quiet chats about the arts, music in particular, which we both loved. There was an air of desolation about the flat now. 
though to anyone else it would have appeared charming. A bijou apartment consisting of lounge, balcony, kitchenette and bathroom. The pleasant living room was furnished with a knee-hole desk, a couple of easy chairs, a campaign chest and a divan which converted into a bed. There was a splendid music centre with very up-to-date equipment which had been Harold's pride and joy. I decided to put on Mozart's Requiem as a tribute to my dear departed friend. Sitting on Harold's bed, I lit a cigarette, a vice we had both shared, although we tried to control it, and listened to the music. I wondered where to start. Sorting out a dear friend's things is a painful business. As my eyes ranged the room, my glance took in the bear lying on the floor, as the policeman had described it, in the vicinity of that wretched radiator. Harold's bear. I knew he'd got one, of course. I remembered it from when I used to go to Harold's house for tea as a child. Bruin, as he called it, always had a place at the table. In fact, it was around for most of our activities. As a mere onlooker, of course. Now it lay on its back like a wounded soldier. I say that because it had a bandage round its head. The ludicrous thought struck me that the bear had fallen first and hit its head on the radiator and Harold had bandaged it up. Well, he wouldn't have put it back on the floor, surely. The more I thought about Harold's accident, the more it didn't make sense. But that was because I just couldn't accept Harold had been drunk. Harold didn't drink. As I walked around the flat, however, I saw with my own eyes the evidence to the contrary. On the kitchen table stood an empty whisky bottle. Another one, with only the bare dregs remaining, was on the floor next to the lavatory, while a dirty whisky glass lay upturned on the carpet. Well, there you go. After years of abstinence, Harold had suddenly lost control. In some fit of depression? The odd thing was that when he did drink, it had never been whisky. In Cambridge days, it had always been Bacardi rum. He'd had this absolute penchant for Bacardi rum. Some old navy salt had got him onto it, he'd told me, on a sailing holiday he'd had off the Cornish coast. Well, people's tastes change. I cleaned up the place a bit, and then thought I'd better make a start on the desk. I really disliked the idea of going through Harold's papers. Nevertheless, it had to be done, and as soon as I pulled open the first drawer... I knew it wasn't going to be too bad. Everything was so ordered, neat and tidy, the way Harold always was. Bills clearly paid on time, and receipts kept. Paper clips, drawing pins, elastic bands, etc., all in suitable containers. No rubbish. It was when I opened the drawer containing Harold's personalised stationery that I found this letter to myself. For some quite unexplainable reason, I had lifted up the cover of the writing pad, and there it was. Not so much a letter, just a few terse lines. Dear Alan, please phone me just as soon as you get back. I need help. I'm desperate. Harold. Help with what? I pondered without success. Desperate? Because he'd started drinking again? But Harold was a very staunch member of AA, and had attended their meetings for years. 
It would have been them, not me, that he'd have turned to if his desperation was over that. And why hadn't he posted the letter? There were envelopes and stamps. And if he'd changed his mind about sending it, it would have been in the waste paper basket. Perhaps he never got any further because he was interrupted. He'd had a visitor before he'd got as far as the envelope. There'd been a knock at the door, perhaps. And he'd done what we all do with something personal like that. We closed the cover and shut the drawer on it. Well, we'll never know now, will we, Bruin? I said to the bear, who was the only other person in the room. He looked at me with his shiny brown eyes and said nothing. It occurred to me that he probably knew more about it than anybody. A few days later I had a visitor at my home, a Miss Spencer. She had telephoned, asking if she could come and see me. Something to do with Mr. Riley, she said, Mr. Riley being Harold. It turned out she was the mousy girl who attended the funeral, and my second impression was even more mousier than the first. We had a cup of tea and Battenberg cake, which had been a favourite of Harold's, so it seemed appropriate. Miss Jennifer Spencer, or Miss Mouse, was twenty-two or three, I hazarded a guess. She was small and neat in a beige suit, with a cream-coloured blouse, beige stockings and brown cord shoes. Her light brown hair was cut in a bob, and she wore roundish spectacles. Obviously shy and a bit ill at ease, I could see it would take her a while to come to whatever was troubling her. I hoped it wasn't a tale of unrequited love. It wasn't. After rambling on about the office, she cleared her throat and said, I think Mr. Riley was afraid of something. Something or somebody, I inquired rather sceptically. Somebody. He thought somebody was after him. After Harold. Whatever for. Miss Mouse sipped her tea and there was a long pause while she picked a few crumbs of Battenberg off her skirt. I'd better tell you what happened, Mr. Hooper. Please. I refilled her cup and passed her the sugar. You know that our firm has a branch office at Groydon? I didn't. I knew that Harold worked for a shipping firm in the city, just as Harold had known I was a lecturer on medieval history, but we seldom discussed our jobs. To save time, I nodded. Well, Miss Mouse continued, Mr. Riley had to visit our office there from time to time, and as his typist, I usually went with him. We travelled together there and back from Victoria. Yes. The last visit we made was a few weeks ago. We'd just got off the train on our return from East Croydon. Mr. Riley stopped to get something out of his briefcase, and suddenly he said, Oh, Christ, what have I done now, Jennifer? And what had he done, I prompted. He'd picked up the wrong briefcase. The train was packed, Miss Mouse went on. It always is, you know, with commuters, like sardines, really. Obviously, Mr. Riley didn't realise. Anyway, he said he'd just have to find out who it belonged to and see if whoever it was had got his. I said, would you like me to do that for you, Mr. Riley? But he told me to get off home. He would deal with it himself. It was after that that things started to go wrong. Wrong in what way? 
Mr. Riley got his own briefcase back all right. It arrived by taxi at the office, but when I asked him if he'd traced the owner of the one he'd taken by mistake, he said, Yes, and I wish to God I hadn't. There was a long pause from Miss Mouse while she cut another slice of cake into very small pieces. Did he elaborate? I asked her. No, he didn't. He gave the impression he didn't want to talk about it any further. He was quite snappy, actually. And then? Well, the first thing I noticed was that he stopped going out to lunch. Mr. Riley always used to go to a little place a few streets away called Bruno's. Italian. A lot of people from the office used it. I thought, well, maybe Mr. Riley's going on a diet or something, although he was quite slim, wasn't he? But then he started acting a bit oddly and asking me if I'd go to the window and see if anyone was watching the office. But why should anyone do that, Mr. Riley? I asked him, and he replied that he'd already spotted someone doing it, so I did what he asked, of course, several times a day. I mean, I was working for him, wasn't I? And did you ever see anyone? Well, I think I did, yes. One late afternoon, just before packing up time, I did think I saw somebody. Looking up at the office? Well, looking outside the building. When I told him, Mr. Riley had a quick look himself. Then he said, That's him, the same bloke who's been following me home. And I'll tell you something, Jennifer, it's on account of that damned briefcase. Then, before he could say anything further, Mr. Hanson, that's Mr. Riley's immediate superior, came into the office and asked Mr. Riley to come into his office and have a drink and a chat right away, before they both went home. And that was all Miss Mouse knew about this mysterious affair, because she never saw Harold again, and there had been no sign of anyone lurking about when she'd left the building. The next day she was told that Mr. Riley was taking a few days off because he hadn't been feeling too well. He had requested a meeting with Mr. Hansen for that very reason. And do you think he told Mr. Hansen what he told you? If he had, I'm quite sure that Mr. Hansen's secretary would have told me. And when you finally heard about Mr. Riley's unfortunate death, did you say anything? No. Why not? A look of obstinacy settled across the mouse's face. Because I thought that if Mr. Riley had wanted them to know about it, he'd have told them himself. Touché. Bravo, Miss Mouse. I looked at her with renewed respect. That was very loyal of you, Miss Spencer. Obviously, I had been singled out for these confidences because I was not the office, who might not have taken it seriously. I thanked her for telling me and tried to reassure her. It's possible that someone was trying to intimidate Mr. Riley, I said. People behave like that sometimes. I'm sure there was no connection between that and his tragic accident. This was not what I thought at all, but the relief on her face was well worth the lie. By the way, I said, as I showed her to the door, did you notice Mr. Riley drinking? I mean, did he keep a bottle of spirits in his desk or anything? Oh, no, said Miss Mouse. The only thing I ever saw Mr. Riley drink was coffee. So, what do you think, Bruin? I asked the bear the next time I was in Harold's flat. Should we go to the police? The bear looked at me with the same expression he always had, rather fierce. He made no comment, but then he never commented on anything I said to him. He'd probably had more of a rapport with Harold, all the years they'd lived together. 
As I stacked Harold's books and music into a couple of packing cases, I thought to myself that the police probably wouldn't be very interested in the story of a loiterer. There were loiterers all over London. Besides, in their eyes, Harold had been a drinker, and therefore subject to seeing pink mice, elephants, or, for that matter, mystery individuals hanging about on pavements. The fact that Harold's typist had seen a man probably wouldn't carry any weight either. Probably a flasher, sir, they'd say, waiting for young girls to come out of the office. And the story of the briefcase? A pretty common occurrence on crowded commuter trains. So the other party got annoyed about it. Who can blame them? But what about that letter to me? I'm desperate. Desperate to stop drinking? Desperate to stop drinking would certainly be the police explanation. I had to have more to go on than that. I carried on with the cleaning up, looking for any clue that Harold might have left behind. But so far there was nothing. Most of the furniture would have to go to auction, I decided but I would keep the music centre and the collection of compact discs because Harold would have wished it. Also, his rather fine camera. It was quite late when I decided to pack it in for the evening. I'd had a hard day lecturing at college and was ready for something to eat before I went to bed. I said goodnight to Bruin, then on impulse decided to take him with me. After all, he was mine now, and he must feel lonely without Harold. I plonked him rather unceremoniously into a plastic bag, turned off the lights, locked the door and left. My home was only a few streets away, but to save cooking I decided to pick up a meal from the little Chinese takeaway that Harold and I had always patronised. It was a pretty chilly old night and there were few people about, but I suddenly became aware that there was someone walking behind me. I stopped suddenly pretending to be engrossed in the lighted windows of a men's outfitter's. The footsteps behind me stopped too, and then I knew. I was being followed. I increased my pace and the footsteps behind me increased also. I didn't look round but made it to the takeaway like a bat out of hell. I gave my order and asked Mr Wang, with whom I was on good terms, if he could possibly order me a taxi. He did so. I waited inside until it arrived and then, clutching my dim sum plus the bear, I left the café. There was no sign of anyone in the immediate vicinity when I stepped into the taxi, and as it made the short journey to my home, wondered if this business of Harold was affecting my imagination. I missed him dreadfully. Once inside my own front door, I felt better, and better still, when I'd eaten my supper, I thought I'd let the food settle before I went to bed. I made a cup of cocoa, sat down, and lit a cigarette. I should have been concentrating on the lecture I was going to give the following morning. Instead, I found myself once more going over in my mind the events that had led up to the death of my friend. I was absolutely convinced it had not been an accident. The remark Harold had made to Miss Mouse, when she asked if he'd traced the owner of the briefcase, kept repeating itself in my brain. Yes, and I wish to God I hadn't. In that reply, it seemed to me, lay the clue to the whole mysterious business. From then on, Harold had been nervous and fidgety at work, had stopped going out to lunch, and was convinced someone was following him. Of course, if he had taken up the booze again, this could have been put down to paranoia. But there had been no signs of drinking in the office, and, 
What is more, Miss Mouse had herself seen someone who appeared to be lurking about. There could only be one explanation for all this, in my opinion. There had been something incriminating in that briefcase. In his attempts to trace the owner, Harold had found it. And in so doing, he had signed his own death warrant. So why hadn't he gone to the police? Because he was himself guilty of taking something that didn't belong to him, and seeing something he wasn't supposed to see? And Harold was no telltale tit. I remembered way back at school when he and I had caught a boy cribbing. I was all for hoisting him up in front of the head, but Harold had said, No, he knows we know. That's punishment enough. He believed in letting sleeping dogs lie and giving the other chap a sporting chance. Harold was a gentleman. Whatever he had found in that briefcase, short of it being a matter of national security, would have been safe with him. He would have told no one. He would not even have told me. I was certain of that. The owner of the briefcase, however, and perhaps other parties, would not have been certain at all. So steps would have been taken. A phone call to Harold, first of all. A suave, anonymous voice at the end of the line. Mr. Ryany, what would you say to a nice new numbered account in a Swiss bank? To which Harold would have replied quite firmly, no, thank you. Under no circumstances would he have accepted a bribe from anyone. You have my word as a gentleman, Harold would have said. That will have to be good enough for you. But for the party, or parties concerned, the word of a gentleman would not have been good enough. It would have meant nothing, since they were probably villains or the Dirty Tricks Brigade, or both. So orders were given. Harold was followed, and when it seemed opportune, the orders were carried out probably the same evening that Harold had written that letter to me. Did the doorbell ring? I asked the bear. Or did it open silently, catching Harold unawares? Was it one man or two? It must have been two, I concluded, since Bruin didn't enlighten me. And they brought the whisky with them. Let's all have a drink, Mr. Riley. Sit down and have a nightcap before you go to bed and, if the invitation was declined, I'm afraid we insist. So Harold had a drink, whether he wanted it or not, and another one, and another one after that. It was all the drinks he hadn't taken in all those years of abstinence. But it wasn't Bacardi rum, it was whiskey they poured down his throat. And if it spilled around a bit, never mind about that, we've got another bottle. Had enough now, have we? Let's get up from the chair, then. It's party overtime. Stand over there, will you, Mr. Riley, in front of the radiator, if you will, please. We'll show you where. Just a few steps to the left. That's better. Only for a minute, Mr. Riley, and then you can lie down. We will assist you to lie down. All be over soon. And it was. Each let go of an arm, and each grasped an ankle. In one quick simultaneous movement, Harold was assisted off his feet, his head hitting the radiator hard as he fell. They hung around for a bit in case he got up. When they were quite sure he would never get up again, one of them chucked the bear at his feet, and they left. Risk eliminated. Is that how it was, Bruin? There was no reply to my question. 
The bear lay supine and silent on the bed, an arm and a paw behind his head, saying nothing. He must have heard all Harold's confidences over the years, all his worries and wishes. An attentive listener who never nodded off, who never voiced opinions of his own, never argued and never answered back. To Harold he must have been the perfect silent friend. Now he was my friend. Looking at him I wondered how old he was. Perhaps he was a stife bear and worth a lot of money. Well, I'd never part with him if he was. But it would be interesting to know. The only way to tell was to examine his ears and see if there was that little identifying tag. And to find out, I said to him, we'll have to take that bandage off your head. Carefully I unwound the slightly grubby piece of crepe. I saw at once why it had been put on. The bear's head was like a boxer's, distinctly battered, and straw and sawdust fell from both his ears. Once upon a time, Bruin had had a fight, with another bear perhaps, at a children's tea party in Harold's youth. I hope this won't cause you any pain, I said to him, but if we want to find out your pedigree, I'll have to explore further. I poked my finger cautiously into his left ear as far as it would go. More straw and sawdust, nothing else. But in the right one I felt resistance, and exploring further I felt what seemed like a small cylinder. Carefully I extracted it. It was nothing to do with Stife, I saw at once. It was a spool of film. So Harold may have been a gentleman, but he had been a cautious one. He had photographed what he'd found in the briefcase. Never, I was absolutely certain, with any intention of using it. But as a form of insurance, if things were going to take a wrong turn, as indeed they had. I reflected that in the first instance, the other party concerned would have expected Harold to have photographed what he had found in the briefcase and to have followed this up with a demand for a cut of the profits. That would have been the behaviour they understood, but when Harold actually turned down their offer of hush money, on the pretext of being a gentleman, they would have been genuinely puzzled and distinctly uneasy. Was this fellow playing for higher stakes by playing their own game for them? Well, they weren't going to risk that. Whatever the scenario, for Harold, it was too late now. It was not too late for me, however. The film would be developed first thing in the morning. We would see what we would see. Industrial secrets, I pondered. Indecent exposures of some well-known VIP seemed more like it. It would explain Harold's reluctance to tell. For a gentleman like Harold to have stooped to initiating a revelation of that sort would have been tantamount to kicking a cripple in the crutch. Well, I hadn't seen the originals, and I didn't have the same scruples in any case. You keep this for tonight, Bruin, I said, placing the spool carefully back in the bear's ear and winding the bandage once again around his head. Tomorrow we shall go to the police, and the process of avenging Harold will begin. It wasn't until I looked at the clock that I realised how late it was, or how tired I had become. It was definitely time for bed. I undressed, brushed my teeth and turned down the bed, placing the bear next to my pillow. Drawing the curtains back, I switched off the light and looked down at the street. Quiet as a graveyard. Not a soul anywhere. No loiterer lurking about. 
Vaguely relieved, I climbed into bed. The soft glow of the street lamp was sufficient for me to see the bear's brown eyes as he lay beside me. Good night, Bruin, I said, and almost immediately I fell asleep. Was it two or three in the morning they came? My uninvited guests. No noise, no broken glass, no splintering of wood. Super efficient. Just a faint click as they switched on the bedside lamp. And there they were. Two men in raincoats and leather gloves, one on each side of the bed. Sorry to disturb you, Mr. Hooper, a voice said. I sat up and saw that one of them had a revolver. You're the men who murdered Harold Riley. Lie down, we're not here to get acquainted. They shoved me back on the pillow. I pulled up the blanket. Perhaps I should play possum. Put your left arm out of the covers. What for? They did it for me. Going to give me the whiskey treatment, are you? Well, I could do with the drink. They smiled simultaneously. We never repeat ourselves, the one with the revolver said. The other one took a syringe and a file from his raincoat pocket. So that's what they had in mind for me. I was to be an overdose case, depressed at the death of a dear friend. I don't know anything, I said to them, even if I was Harold Riley's best friend. That may be, Mr. Hooper. The man with the syringe had filled it and was pushing up the sleeve of my pyjama. But you're what we call a loose connection. Better be safe than sorry. I attempted to struggle, but the other man pinned me to the pillow. I can't get a vein up, the man with the syringe said, smacking my forearm. I'll have to make a tourniquet with something. His eyes fell on the bear. He picked it up and unpinned the bandage, causing a trickle of sawdust to fall on the pillow. This'll do. He wound the crepe tightly around my arm, as I tried once more in vain to struggle. The man with the syringe smiled like a sympathetic dentist. You won't feel a thing, he said, plunging the syringe into the vein. No pain at all, I can promise you that. He withdrew the syringe, pressed my fingers around it, and then let it drop to the floor. He was right about the pain. There wasn't any. Just a numbness and a feeling of floating. The men in raincoats never said goodbye, but they weren't there anymore and they must have switched off the bedside lamp before they left because the room seemed to have grown darker. My eyes found it difficult to focus, but I could still see Bruin lying comfortably close. It seemed to me that his expression was less fierce than usual. There was a look of compassion on his face, and a hint of a tear in the clear brown eyes. I wanted to speak to him, but no words came out. I felt incredibly tired, and I knew I was fast going to sleep. I was quite contented. My final thought, before I closed my eyes for the last time, was that the bear knew. He had the secret, and one day, he would avenge us both.
to you.